that prefrontal cortex of our brain isn't very good at regulating our social media use when we're tired. This is why we eat crappy food when we're tired. I turn my phone to grayscale and I'm the first to say that Instagram is really boring in black and white. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism. I'm Adelaine Ung. As professionals in the fast-paced world of tourism and events, we know the importance of maintaining focus and productivity. But that's become increasingly challenging due to our growing dependence on computers and phones, blurring the boundaries between work and personal life. We do already know this, but the impact of our digital habits go a lot deeper than we might think. If you've been following addiction experts, you may have heard them likening smartphones to modern-day hypodermic needles, delivering quick hits of dopamine through attention, validation, and distraction. We've become a generation addicted to stimulation, unable to be alone with our thoughts or concentrate on important tasks. In other words, we're forever interrupting ourselves And this can have a huge impact on our focus and productivity. As someone who grapples with an avalanche of browser tabs and apps open across some 20 Chrome and Safari windows, don't laugh or roll your eyeballs, I know at least one of you listening is like me, I recognize full well the pain of trying to keep up with everything that involves a screen. My guest today says digital detoxes are not the answer. So what is? In this eye-opening two-part episode with Dr. Christy Goodwin, we explore some fascinating insights and practical ideas addressing this issue. Dr. Christy Goodwin is a digital well-being and neuroproductivity speaker, whose new book is Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, a guilt-free guide to taming your tech habits and thriving in a distracted world. Here's part one, and I do apologize for the quality of my voice, as I was still recovering from the flu when this was recorded. Christy Goodwin, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're able to join us. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. I just love your book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. I do think many of us are looking for solutions to have a better relationship with our screen life. But more than that, there seems to be an urgency in your message that says our digital habits are actually slowly killing us. (laughs) Or is that too dramatic? I think our tech habits are having a profound impact on us physically, psychologically, from a productivity and performance perspective. Whether we could necessarily say they're killing us, that might be a bit of a a quantum leap, but they are most certainly having a detrimental and a profound impact on us in, in often very subtle, but often very powerful ways. So yes, I agree. There is an urgency with this message. The harsh reality is, you know, depends on the relationship you have with tech. Some of us love it. Some of us loathe it. Some of us oscillate during the day between those two extremes. The reality is that it's here to stay. It's not a fad. It's not a phase. Technology is going to play an integral part in our personal lives, in our professional lives moving forwards. So I think now we're at a juncture in time where we need to really forge healthy relationships with technology. And I think we have to take back our power. We have to be in control of the technology, not the other way around where it dictates and determines how we spend our time and our attention. Well, I can't tell you how timely this conversation is for me. I love technology, probably a little bit too much. I go down way too many rabbit holes. (laughs) I had 
just begun thinking how unmanageable my life had become after everything shifted through COVID. And it's been exacerbated by my bad digital habits. I'm fully aware of them, but I can't help myself at the same time. And I've been tempted to think maybe I do need a digital detox, but you say digital detoxes aren't the answer. So why do you say that? And then what is the answer? Yes. So I I think we need to acknowledge that many of us are experiencing what I colloquially refer to as the digital hangover. I think COVID lockdowns, you know, a global pandemic made us in many instances develop some unhealthy digital dependencies and digital habits. And I think we're now seeing the sort of cascading long-term impacts of some of those habits. I think with the way that people are now often working with distributed teams, our reliance on technology is going to continue. So I know a lot of people think, well, a pragmatic, realistic solution is to do a digital detox. And the research actually tells us that digital detoxes do not work. They do not work in terms of creating long-term sustainable digital habits and behaviours. A bit like a juice cleanse or any sort of extreme diet that you might go on, similar to sort of a detox, it often creates a binge and a purge cycle. So if I do a detox, a digital detox for a couple of days, I often come back Monday morning after my digital detox weekend and I have a bulging inbox. I have, you know, thousands of unread DMs and notifications. And so it can create that binge and purge cycle. The other reason that I say that digital detoxes don't necessarily work is because a study examined what happened and they had a control group and they had another experimental group and they had one group go on at what would be considered a detox. They removed social media, they had no access for a period of time. The other group in comparison just reduced their social media use by an hour a day. They measured the groups at the end and there were quite profound differences in terms of their report, self-reports of well-being in the, the extra time that they had available. What was really fascinating was that the, at the end of the study, about four months after, so the study wasn't continuing, people were told to go about your business as usual. What was really clear from the, the four-month post-intervention sort of follow-up was that the group that had the one-hour reduction per day continued to have better habits around their tech use, whereas the group that did the hardcore digital detox refrained from using their technology actually reverted back to their old habits. So it goes to show, I think, that it's all about, and and this is what I, I really love talking about with the clients that I work with, it's not about doing a radical overhaul because I don't think many of us could achieve that. You know, I think it's a real luxury for anybody to be able to unplug for a few days or a week. You know, unless you've got somebody else managing your digital life, we need technology. So I think it's a real reminder that we need to apply micro habits, just small little tweaks, small little adjustments to how we use technology so we can tame our tech habits, not the other way around where we're a slave to our screen. I I love how your tips are all about making this work for you long-term. It's something that is sustainable, but also there's so much in your book about the relationship between digital consumption and our physiology and our neurology, all this fascinating stuff that, you know, I never knew. What do you think most people would be surprised and pretty gobsmacked to know? Yeah, so I shared this at a conference yesterday and I had so many people come up and talk to me afterwards. And again, it's a reminder that our tech habits are impacting us in really subtle but powerful ways. So there is a condition that has been studied called email apnea. And it's this idea that when we go into our inboxes, we often hold our breaths, literally. We 
gasp. We often dump a whole lot of cortisol. Our heart rate accelerates. Our pupils dilate. We have a physiological response to our inboxes. And so this elevates our stress response. A fascinating study was done a couple of years ago, and they looked at what happens when we're looking at a screen, be that a smartphone, a desktop, a laptop, whatever sort of screen we're looking at. What this study showed was that our sigh rate drops significantly when we're looking at a screen. Now, as humans, we naturally, while we're awake, sigh roughly every five minutes. It's a a natural biological buffer to help us counter stress. It's our body's way of regulating our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. So we do it, often we're unaware that we're doing it, and we do it roughly every five minutes as a way to sort of calm us down. However, when we're looking at our screen, we don't sigh anywhere near as much. What does this tell us? We're often breathing in a really shallow way. We're often in a really heightened, stressed state. And yet we spend hours of our days now on our devices. Another really profound thing that's impacting us, and again, we're often unaware, but it's having a profound impact on our physiology and our psychology, is that when we have a very narrow gaze, when we're looking at a screen, our eyes converge. This sends a message to our brain that we are under stress. Why? Because as humans, we are biologically designed to dilate our gaze. We are designed to look at things in the distance. We're not biologically designed to have a constant close view. And not only is this having an impact on our eyesight, um, we are seeing rates of myopia increase, and there's other reasons for that, in particular our our lack of sunlight because we're inside on our screens, but it's also, again, a biological message to our body that we are under possible threat. We are stressed because when we're constantly in that close gaze, it is our body's way of saying we need to merge all our resources. There is a potential danger or stressor approaching us. Let's have a very narrow gaze. When we're just, as humans, designed to spend more of our time looking at things further away. So they're the two big ones, I think, that we just don't even recognize, but they're having a profound impact on us. It's so interesting because none of us were thinking about these things during COVID, of course. And I remember doing almost eight hours of Zoom back to back in one day. (laughs) You would have been exhausted. It was, I was exhausted and it was probably one of my least productive days right at the end. And I had to take the whole of the next day just to recover from that. If I could, not that I even had the option because I had more Zoom meetings, but, um, (laughs) It's a fascinating conversation because I do remember speaking to different people and there was a strong group of people who were thinking that, hey, now that, you know, we know that we can conduct these Zoom meetings and actually convert sales, high level sales, just from a phone call or from Zoom meetings, that's going to spell the end of in-person meetings. And, you know, this is an events podcast. The events industry was, of course, horrified. And they say there's nothing that's, that's going to replace in-person events. But you're giving so much of that science to the argument for in-person events. I love this conversation. And I love, you know, how we are meant for connection and that physical yeah. connection. And I don't think anything can replace that. So even that 60 centimeter conversation, I think is what you call that distance <laughs> between yourself and the screen. There's so much to that and you explore all of that in your book even further. So this is fascinating. Can I just jump in there? I I totally agree. Nothing beats human connection. And the research tells us this. A really interesting study compared text-based communication, so writing an SMS or sending a DM or 
conversing on social media to in-person conversations. And what the study clearly showed is that our body does not produce anywhere near as much oxytocin, which is the social bonding or the love hormone we sometimes call it, when we do text-based communications. When we are with real people in real time in a real room, we make that that social bonding hormone. That's why we found lockdown so hard. We, we didn't get that opportunity, you know, unless it, it was the Uber Eats person coming to your door and standing the appropriate distance away. We really didn't, apart from our partners and pets, have much. And we looked forward so much to the oh, <laughs> driver arriving without you know, wait, one, one of my ch- One of my children noticed that I had a, um, had a FedEx delivery and I was doing a fair bit of online shopping, as many of us did. And I got to know the FedEx delivery person because there was always just one driver so well. And I was always up for a chat. One of my kids said, why do you talk to that poor man so much? (laughs) And it made me realize I was craving that oxytocin, being trapped in a house with three boys, a a pet and a husband that was conveniently deemed an essential worker. (laughs) There was not much (laughs) other opportunity for oxytocin. The other really interesting thing with that study is that it showed that text-based communications actually increases our cortisol, our stress response. Wow. And so we we I think we all instinctively know this that you know when you were talking before that 60 centimeter rule, it's this idea that when we sit 60 centimeters away from our Zoom meeting or our Teams meeting, it's what social anthropologists call our intimate social distance. That space is traditionally, you know, 60 centimetres around our body is traditionally reserved for cuddling, comforting, lovemaking, wrestling, tackling. But all of a sudden, you're 60 centimetres away from a potential client, from a colleague. And so our brain is getting these sort of stress responses and we find video calls so fatiguing. We're not imagining it. Brain scans have actually shown that fatigue sets in at around that 30 to 40 minute mark. You don't get that at a real event with real people in real time. It's strange to think that sometimes we're, we'd like to think that we're in charge of our own bodies and yet there's so much that we think we know we're in control of and yet there's so many things that are going on that we're completely unaware of and yet these are slowly eating away at our, you know, at our biology and our neurology, as, as you say. So, and it's so important this day and age post-COVID when we talk about prioritizing our well-being, that we mm. do look after these things. So I also loved this idea that you have in your book about how you can make Zoom work because Zoom's not going to go away, but you can have best practices so that you do make it work for you. Things like turning your Zoom meetings into walking meetings, you know, yeah. and, and I love that idea because you get your exercise, you get your sunlight, you get your connection to greenery all in one hit. You also think better. Research tells us, and it's a fancy word, but it basically tells us, they call it forward ambulation. And when we walk, i.e. we move forward, things go past um, our eyes. And this flow, this, oh, they call it optic flow, actually comes down the part of our brain called the amygdala. And that's often our emotional hub. So when we calm down our emotional response, this is when we often come up um, with creative ideas. I often find when I'm stuck on a problem at work, you know, there's a complex issue or there's a, a formula on a spreadsheet that I just can't figure out. Getting up and just going for a quick walk really often helps that 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 idea land. So yeah, I totally agree. Switching to walking meetings, hiding yourself view. If you're on a video call, seeing yourself 
can be really confronting. You know, you start to notice, yes, like my eyebrows do need plucking. You know, I am going <laughs> bold like my kids have pointed out to me. It's akin to us walking into a physical boardroom and putting a mirror in front of ourselves. We never mm. do that. And so it's the very first time in history where we see what we look like in a social context. Normally in a social context, our focus is on everybody else, their mannerisms. So hiding your self-view. And if you can't remember how to do it because Zoom and Teams move things around and and change their settings all the time, pick up an old-fashioned post-it note and whack the post-it note over your video, not the camera, just over your video. You know, increasing how far you sit away from the monitor because if you're having a one-on-one call and you've got a really large-sized computer monitor, the other person's head can sometimes be disproportionately large. And again, our brain is getting these muddled associations. It's getting really confused and and stressed. Blocking out background noise. You know, when you're working at home and you can hear your neighbor talking or the delivery person at the front or the dogs barking, that often can create stress too. So there are ways, I totally agree, to mitigate the, the perils of Zoom gloom, as I sometimes call it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is actually quite strange to see yourself sometimes. Oh, the, isn't it? We got used to it, but it was like, you know, you're asking like, why am I frowning? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. And that's, that, that's the other thing. We often, one of the reasons we also find it so exhausting is because we have a truncated postage stamp view of the person. We, our brain is trying to compensate for the, the, the truncated body language that we can't see, you know, the hand gestures. As a participant, we also tend, and I bet this will resonate, we tend to over-exaggerate our facial expressions and gestures because if you were to behave like you normally would in a meeting, it doesn't come across on video. News reporters Mm. often talk about how you have to be the extra 10% online. And yet we're doing that for hours a day, you know, with overemphasized gestures and, and smiling more than what we normally would. And it's just exhausting as a human to do that constantly. I'm going to have to rethink so many things. I love big screens. I've got like a 27-inch monitor and uh, and it's just because I do editing. So that extra real estate just really helps. Perfect. Yep. But yeah. Just shrink it for your Zoom meetings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. There's so many things I need to reconsider right now, but I would love to focus on social media for a moment. It, it's pretty obvious just odds are stacked against us. I mean, platforms like Instagram and Facebook, and I'm pretty sure TikTok, figured out years ago how to make their apps highly addictive. If the answer isn't deleting these apps necessarily, and some of us can't, we need them for work. How do you beat the constant lure of dopamine hits? Uh, I think first and foremost, disable all non-essential notifications. So notifications, because they come to us, you know, in the form of a vibration, a a light, a color, it tricks our brain into thinking that they are all urgent and important. We have, I often say, we have ancient paleolithic brains. We have brains that are designed to go and get information, designed to go and forage and hunt. But when information comes to us, it tricks our brain into thinking this is a potential danger or stressor. I better treat it. I better triage it. So I think first and foremost, disabling your notifications. I think having sort of scheduled, if you can, social media hours. A lot of the social media platforms have some generic built-in screen time features, and I acknowledge they are super, super easy to override. They're by no means a prohibitive tool, but they can um, force you to reconsider what you want to, you know, how much time you want to spend. 
can set daily limits or you can set the frequency at which you want to be using social media. Another technique I know when I am really likely to go down the digital rabbit hole, which is often when I'm tired because that, that prefrontal cortex of our brain isn't very good at regulating our social media use when we're tired. This is why we eat crappy food when we're tired. I turn my phone to grayscale and I'm the first to say that Instagram is really boring in black and white. Another thing you can do is to, if you do really want to get your notifications, have them bundled or batched so that they come through to you at convenient times of the day rather than just dribbling in. Another thing I've found really helpful is to take my tech temptations off the home screen of my phone. Because when you unlock your phone, maybe it's just to check the weather or maybe it's to make an actual phone call. If you see Instagram or TikTok or whatever your sort of Achilles heel is sitting there on that prime real estate of that homepage, you're much more likely to open it and click on it. So take it off that homepage, tuck it in, you know, the fifth slide on your, your phone. Another technique, a little micro habit that also works, again, when I know I'm so much more likely to go down that digital rabbit hole, is to log out of the app. Now, depending on how good your memory is um, and depending on how many thousands of passwords you need to remember, what that does is that when you want to go back into the app, it creates a bit of friction because you have to remember your passcode. You have to think, hang on, is this my maiden name, my favorite child and dog's name password, or is this my husband's pet name, my favorite numbers and my postcode? Like, So it just creates that intermediary step. And sometimes that's enough for us to think, hang on, do I really want to go back down and do this? And sometimes you'll get so frustrated that you can't remember your passcode and you'll find something else to do. So there's ways, I think, around the social media use, but it is hard. And our willpower depletes throughout the day. So we're much more likely to make better choices in the morning than we are at 10 o'clock at night. I just experimented with putting my phone on do not disturb mode during the day. And I have to say it was, it felt super weird because seeing (sighs) no numbers next to my messenger app, no numbers next to my WhatsApp, no numbers next to my phone messages was pretty weird. And then it was pretty cool. So <laughs> I felt, I actually felt quite liberated not having those stresses. And, and I, I felt, a, you know, an instant state of relaxation. So that was a really interesting experience. But going grayscale on social media, how do you do that? So it depends on your device, if you're an Android or iOS user, but it is in your settings and there's so many video tutorials online that tell you how to do it, again, depending on your operating system and the version of your operating system, but it is definitely in your device's settings and you can activate it. I'm an iOS user. I can actually activate it. I've set up a shortcut. So three clicks on one of the side buttons on my phone automatically enables grayscale. So I don't even have to press buttons and go in there and then three clicks disables it. So I can oscillate between the two depending on sort of my willpower and self-control. Can I also say what you were talking about before when you went on do not disturb mode, I think we have to, as part of us taking back control, we have to, I often say, build a fortress around our focus. So when we want to get our deep work done, when we really want to focus, maybe we want to be present with our partner, with a family member, with our kids. 
we get to choose when we activate that focus mode or do not disturb mode. And again, it's really subtle, persuasive design techniques that hook us in. You know, that red bubble, it's no accident that our notification bubbles tend to be by default red. There's not an accident that there's a metric in there telling you you've got 48 unread DMs. Those two behaviors, a red color is associated with danger, urgency, importance, Would you feel compelled to check it if it was baby pink or sky blue or apple green? Probably not. So it's the colors and even the number, you know, how excited do we feel when we get down our CR inbox, get down to zero? It's that completion bias. So again, no accident, but again, there are things that we can do because if we sit around and wait for the tech companies to make their platforms and apps less sticky, less addictive and less appealing, it's never going to happen. And so I think we have to take back our power where we can. What do you say to people who are right now thinking, well, you know, that sounds great. I probably need to do this for my mental health, but I work using a lot of social media. And you know what they say, social media won't do things like proactively show your content to others unless the platforms can tell that you're engaging with other accounts, which means you're always on, you're always responding. You're, You're almost like customer service, really. So if you're in that kind of job, Are there ways to still put in some what you call guardrails in place so that you do have that healthy relationship with digital? Yes, I think, as you said, identifying um, and creating your digital guardrails. So coming up with the, the places, the spaces, the times when you want to be on and also creating that line of demarcation between when you want to be on and when you want to be off. Because again, no one's going to come in and rescue us from going down that digital rabbit hole. So if, you know, social media engagement, if being responsive on emails is a, a, a core part of your job, then sometimes there is an element of needing to be responsive and to be on to a certain extent. But I often challenge people who say, I always need to be on. I I can't let it sit there. We have created and tech has created what I call the urgency fallacy. It's this idea that everything feels urgent and important. And the reality is that, yes, sometimes you do need to respond to DMs or comments or interact or respond to emails, but not everything has to be done now. I think we've sort of got swept up in this notion that we need to be perpetually on and perpetually responsive. And in some regards, sometimes customer service roles, sometimes sales roles, sometimes if there's an extenuating circumstance happening in your business, then yes, you do need to to assume that. But I think the problem is when this becomes our norm and we almost get hooked into operating this way because our our nervous system becomes so dysregulated and we become almost, uh, that, that becomes our new normal, that that's, we have to respond in that way. So I think clarifying, I often say to people, clarify what I call your tech expectations with your team, with your leaders, with your colleagues, you know, what is an acceptable internal email response rate? If you are using social media, ideally, do you want comments replied to within an hour or is it within a day? So sort of coming up with some parameters around what those expectations are is really important. You've been listening to part one of my interview with Dr. Christy Goodwin. In part two next week, I I feel like I'm airing all my dirty digital laundry (laughs) here, but another major area of digital disorder for me is my computer. I have not dozens, but hundreds of tabs open on my computer. And I realize my base problem is probably FOMO. How do I untangle myself? If you relate, next week's episode is not one to miss. Plus, we'll discuss some easy tweaks to conquer your phone's addictive pull 
and how your whole workplace can come to an agreement over digital expectations. Hope you'll join me then. Don't forget, if you found value in today's show, please click the follow button if you'd like to be notified when a new episode drops. And if you've ever considered launching a podcast with a strategy to land in Apple's top 200 charts in the first week, feel free to send me an email at uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com and we'll explore how we can make that happen. Catch you next week for part two to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers. Cheers.